0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Then Again, the podcast of the Northeast Georgia History Center. I am Marie Bartlett, the director of the Ada Mae Education Center here, and today I have with me my fabulous research interns who have been working on research for our educational programs and historic interpretation this summer. So could you, could you please introduce yourselves to our listeners?
1: My name is Malia Gray. I've been doing mainly research on the White Path Cabin and White Path himself. I am a recent graduate of Kennesaw State University, and I studied anthropology while I was there. And I'm going to get my master's in criminal justice in January.
0: Wonderful. All right. And Sarah, can you introduce yourself to our
2: listeners? Yeah. Hi, um, I'm Sarah Bishop. I go to Oglethorpe University in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, I'm a history major with an art history minor, and I'm going into my senior year this fall. I've been also doing research on white path. Oh, yes. And I'm I plan on going back to school to get my masters in public history after I graduate and look for a job in that career field.
0: Wonderful. So as they've been saying, they have been working on researching White Path, his cabin, and the Pinson family who lived there after White Path, because we have so much wonderful information about White Path and the Pinson family, but we really wanted to go and research even more and get even more wonderful details and facts and documents to back up oral histories because... The White Path Cabin is indeed our largest artifact here at the History Center. It is so central to what we do in all of our educational programming that we want to make sure that we have as much information as we can possibly get our hands on to talk about the White Path Cabin because the story of the White Path Cabin and the Pinson family, it is not just about this one site. I mean, of course it is about this one site, but it's also more than that. It's very much a story of Northeast Georgia and who was living here. Um, So can you give us a little bit of an overview of what y'all found while researching? Malia, we'll start with you.
1: Okay, so starting with Chief Whitepath himself, he was born in the 1760s in LJ, Georgia, which is um, Gilmore County. He was a, a chief... In a small town that was actually located about six miles outside of L.A.J. called Turnip Town. That's what it translates to, at least. The first major battle White Path was accorded to fought in is the Creek War of 1814 alongside alongside General Andrew Jackson. There's, not, there's little doubt that he was joined in other battles for the Cherokees during the Revolution. However, um, he was named an American patriot for his efforts that led to the defeat of the Creek Indians, a tribe that the Cherokees had a constant feud with. White Path and um, Chief John Ross swam across the Tallapoosa River and they got in behind the fortified well of the Creeks and surprised them by taking their canoes on March 27th, 1814. Um, General Andrew Jackson decorated and commemorated White Path for this with a medal. And then in 1824 and 18 to, to 1828, White Path w- led both uh, religious and political rebellions encouraging his people to return to traditional Cherokee ways rather than conforming to you know the new European lifestyle. However, those efforts eventually ceased in order to unify the Cherokee Nation in hopes to oppose the removal efforts. And then after after these efforts, White Path went, White Path went on to be a member of the Cherokee Council and a delegate to Washington, D.C., and then in 1834, White Path and John Ross went to Washington for business and found an opportunity to reacquaint with uh, General Andrew Jackson. And then White Path received a gift of silver, of a silver watch and a pledge that he shall remain in his ancient land as, quote unquote, long as grass grows and water runs. And then, based on this pledge, it is reasonable that White Path expected to be, um, that pledge to be honored. But unfortunately, in the end, um, it was not. And he was forcibly removed from his home and he set out on the Trail of Tears in 1838 with his people.
0: Yes, and you even found uh, more just about the man Whitepath. Um, you found a wonderful article and research about his gravesite where he was buried. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yes. So, Chief Whitepath, he was kind of made a leader while he was on the Trail of Tears. It was he let they his, him and his group left about the first week of October. And from a, several accounts, it was from Elijah Hicks. Elijah Hicks, and from an account on, from him on October 16th, we know that on October 16th, White Path was already sick, but he was still alive. However, so that he did, he was. We do know that he had died sometime after that from a different account. We know that he died sometime in late October, but the re- historic registration form that I did find on his burial site it is in um, Latham County in Hopkinsville, Kentucky It is in the Latham cemetery. He uh, was buried alongside another Cherokee Indian chief called uh, his name was flysmith. They were buried in this cemetery that is now part of the trail of tears park in uh, Hopkinsville, Kentucky. We do know from a, later account that their graves were kind of spoke over by two Indian ministers. And then there are now two marble markers that label their graves. And there are two life-size statues outside of that cemetery as well.
0: All right. And then Sarah, can you give us a little bit of an overview of your research that you conducted um, and what some of your finds were?
2: Yeah, so I also focus on White Path, as I mentioned earlier, but most of my research had to do with the land that he lived on. Um, so in 1832, the U.S. government took it upon themselves to survey the land that was occupied by the Cherokee Nation, and they wanted to auction it off in the land lottery. So District 10, Section 2, Lot 272 of the Georgia Land Lottery was awarded to a man named John Lovett from Bo- from Butts County. And this lot contains what we believe to have been the cabin that White Path lived in. Since, while the land was surveyed and divided up in 1832 and earlier, the Cherokee removal did not begin until closer to 1837-38, like Malia was saying. And unfortunately, White Path died in 1838 in Kentucky on the Trail of Tears. So to start out that research, the first place I looked was the 1835 Cherokee Census. Um, it's the only known census listing the entire Cherokee Nation east of the Mississippi River before their for- their forced removal. Um, at this time, I was looking through a physical copy of the census that was at the um, History Center, and White Path was mentioned as number 322 on page 42 of the census. He was listed with two full-blooded Cherokee peoples on the property, one male over 18 and one female over 16. They had one farm two houses and 12 acres and they had one reader of Cherokee one weaver and one spinster um, a bit later as I was continuing my research I looked at a digitized copy of the census and I was able to use a search and find tool to make sure that I was finding all of the information that I needed and in doing so I found something that I had actually missed the first time when I was looking through the physical copy um, White path was actually mentioned twice in the census the first mention of White Path was a repeat of the information I found previously stating that there were two people living on 12 acres with two houses. But one difference I did found in that entry was that this copy of the census listed that the property was located on or near the LJ River, which would um, corroborate, I guess, the story that um, he did live in Elegy. Um And then the second new mention of White Path was listed with Ten full-blood Cherokee peoples living on the property with two men under 18, four men over 18, two women under 16, and two women over 16. One reader of Cherokee, one farmer, one weaver, and two spinsters. They had one farm, seven acres, and two houses. And this land was recorded to have been located on or near Petit's Creek, which is roughly 25 miles south of where the other mention of White Path is said to be located. Um, both of these records were written by different men, um, both Esquires, but I was unable to find any information about them or any concrete proof that um, the two mentions of White Path were or were not the same person.
0: So it is very possible that these two different people who were both set out with the same task of surveying the Cherokee both talked to the same person. Yes, it is entirely possible. All right. Uh, There was also... um, a catch that you made at the History Center involving a land map. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
2: So, yeah, when I was researching um, the land lottery and the surveyors and the winners of the properties, I was looking at all of the maps of the districts and sections, and I realized that the sign inside of the History Center was not showing the right map. The sign inside the History Center, the map that it displayed, showed District 9, Section 2, Lot 272, instead of District 10, Section 2, Lot 272. So I pointed that out to Marie, and
0: they're going to get that fixed. Absolutely. That's why we want to make sure that we have multiple people looking at all of our things. And also why we're doing a lot of this research, while we have a lot of research about White Path, is because we want to make sure, you know, we're, we live in a digital age where we're having more and more resources available to us, Um, more things are getting digitized, more things are being put online, and we want to make sure that we don't miss anything um, because while research might have been done, you know, a lot of really great research was done 20 years ago or or even before that, is that we want to make sure we don't miss any new tidbits, new just juicy details um, that can add to our story and can add to our interpretation of the White Path Cabin. Because as I said, White Path is such a central role here um, at the History Center. We want to make sure that that role remains incredibly prominent and that we are making sure we have the full story of his life and also the full story of the cabin. Because while White Path or possibly his parents um, built the cabin, right, Malia? I think you did a little bit of um, information about that. We can't for sure say if White Path or White Path's parents built the cabin Um though we believe it to date from about 1780, the cabin itself um, has, you know, even more of a story as well, because not just White Path and his parents possibly lived there, but also after removal, um, the cabin truly changes form. And Malia, you did a little bit more research about that, the structure of the cabin, the addition to the cabin. Uh, Can you tell our listeners a little bit about your research into the physical structure and building of the cabin? Yes.
1: So I got this information from a Foxfire book. They did a historical assessment of the entire cabin. Um, And that is the White Path cabin itself, correct? Yes, yes, ma'am. The uh, White Path cabin. So the... As you mentioned, the cabin was originally built in LJ, Georgia by either Whitepath or his parents. It was it's, it remained there until Don Cooley brought it to Hall County in the 1980s. When he brought it down, he did a lot of renovations to it. But before that, when the Pence family lived there, they added a whole second half of the cabin. And what Foxfire book was that in? Just so I can also go look at it. Um, the title of it is Hog Dressing, Log Cabin Building mountain crafts and foods and it's like a bunch of different stuff but it's the one that starts with hog dressing and log cabin building.
0: So, after um the Pinsen family was awarded the land and we'll get into a little bit about how the Pinsen family ended up with the land and how we're really looking into exactly how that happened because they didn't win it in the land lottery, but that's a whole story. We'll get in, into it in just a second. So, the Pinsen family, of course, we do know that they lived there. And that we believe they added on a second room to the white path cabin, and then also added a hallway in the middle, making it a dog trot style cabin. The two rooms are un- of unequal size. One is smaller, one is larger, making it, well, one would assume that therefore it is an audition because otherwise you would probably make them about the same size and, or the, the exact same size just for ease of building. But, what I was really interested in, Malia, is that you also were, um, found out some more information about the roof um, and how the roof line has changed over the years. Can you tell us a little bit about the roof of the cabin?
1: So the roof has a truss system that is currently more uniform in nature and has more of an attic uh, design. The exterior cladding is of the roof is attached to a rough cut pine decking, which is are cut uh, ve- at varying lengths and widths and then the edges of the roof line exhibit box cornices and the roof pitch is it's too steep to align with traditional Cherokee design and it indicates more of a late 19th and early or early 20th century design instead because since it's too steep now that means that um is more in line with a 19th or early 20th century design. Traditional Cherokee design is a low slope and a low slope would reduce the height of the sleeping loft that's on at the top of the cabin, um, and an average human would not have been able to fit in it comfortably. And this would have helped with keeping heat in the cabin as well. But now since it's too, uh, so with it being too steep now, that means that it was, the roof was kind of lifted. So the loft is much more bigger now and it can actually be used as more of a living space rather than just sleeping or storage like the original purpose would have been.
0: Yes, I find that fascinating just how, The cabin has changed and evolved with time, um, but you can still see some of its um, original um, structure, those hand-hewn beams, which are just so cool. Sarah, you also did research into the land lottery because you were really focusing on on the land itself. Once White Path was forcibly removed from his house and his land, it was then taken by the United States government, divvied up into land lotteries, and we then learned uh, who it was awarded to correct? Yes. It was awarded to a man named John Lovett from Butts County. And then we have been researching, but cannot find a land of sale deed between John Lovett and Aaron Pinson, but then Malia found a deed of sale, correct? Yes. A deed of sale. Yes. So you found a deal, deed of sale, and that went, man's name was? Joseph Slate. Joseph Slate. So we now believe that perhaps, but we have not found it yet, but that's just because we figured this out about 24 hours ago, folks, and that we believe that John John Lovett won the land and the land lottery, then sold it to a man named Joseph Slate, and then Joseph Slate sold it to the Pinson family, all within a matter of a very short span of time, we believe. Um, and this would have been, this cooperates with our, our just general understanding and history of the land lotteries. A lot of people who won the land lotteries did not end up living on that land themselves. They did end up selling it to other people to make money. So since they did sell it to make money, we assume, you know, change hands a couple of times, make some money on each transaction. But we do not believe that John Lovett or Joseph Slate lived there for any long period of time or even lived there at all, we do know that the Pinson family did live there for the most of the second half of the 1800s. And Malia, you did more research into the Pinson family themselves as well, because that's also a very large part of the story of the cabin is, is their time in residence there. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about the Pinson family and what you learned about them? Okay. So, yes. Aaron Pinson, who's believed to be the first person first person from the Pinson family to live
1: there. So, he was born in 1784 and died, presumably, at the, Pin- uh, the White Path cabin in 1845 he was married to a woman named mary pinson and then they had three children margaret pinson joseph pinson and then bartley um and then it kind of goes from bartley pinson and the family tree um he lived in the cabin next with his wife susan and their children after that and then after bartley after bartley pinson it um Arthur Pinson lived in the cabin and then Andrew Pinson also lived in the cabin. And uh, there's not a whole lot of there's not a whole lot of the record from then until when it was kind of abandoned when the Pinson family started renting it out because they did eventually rent it out and then the renters left and then they it, then it was abandoned before Don Crowley found it. There's not a whole lot of record who lived there, but I think from some different research I did it was Gladys Pinson
0: I forgot his wife her
1: her husband's name but it was Gladys Pinson the last one that lived there I believe before it was moved to Hall County
0: all right yeah I think that's good you know uh, so that's the Pinson line that lived in the house until about the late 1800s early 1900s before they started renting it out and I believe that you named the family the the Leatherwood family correct is who you found was the renters there for a time that might have been me oh my all right well sarah that's a great transition to your research yeah so
2: the leatherwood family lived in the cabin from the late 1930s through world war ii at least at the history center we actually have like a over the phone interview with a woman named maybelline weaver um, whose full name is cora maybelline leatherwood weaver who was born um, on august 5th 1930 and she lived there with her family through World War II. And she actually, um, in her interview, has an anecdote about the loft that you guys were just talking about, how no one in her family slept in the loft, but they only used it when it was time to thresh peas. The dried peas were put in a mattress cover and she and her sister would jump on the mattress cover and beat the peas out of their pods. The only other use for the loft was to store her father's moonshine supplies and her father's canned foods. Uh, their mother died in 1946, and the family moved out of the cabin to Chattahoochee, Georgia.
0: And that's when the cabin was essentially uh, abandoned. And that makes sense that around the 1940s is when we have the explosion of suburbs. Um, people are starting to get things very, very averagely, like um, running water, electricity, uh, things that this cabin does not have uh, or would not have had at that time, Um so it makes sense that at that time they probably went to go seek their fortune elsewhere, um, and then that cabin was abandoned until a descendant of White path. Don Cooley was able to find it and restore it, uh, which is wonderful um, that he was able to restore it and to to truly save it to to preserve this wonderful piece of history, um, and then donating it to the history center to where we can you know do wonderful research and things like uh, we're doing right now today. So about 1830 to 1850 is the time period that we have interpreted on the left side of the cabin. And then on the right side of the cabin, if you're facing the cabin from the steps of the History Center, um, where you enter into this cabin, the right side we you have as almost like a bonus room, uh, but we have been having conversations about maybe interpreting that side of the cabin as a one-room schoolhouse. So some of the other research that you did um, was about what would a one-room schoolhouse have been like in the mid to late 1800s. So can you tell us a little bit more about your research about one-room schoolhouses, the teachers, the students, and the general you know, facts that we need to use for interpreting this? Because we are also, and uh, I'll give a plug for one of our upcoming events, but we have our first homestead day of the year coming up on September 16th from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. And the theme of that is going to be the one-room schoolhouse where our listeners, anybody in the community, y'all can come out and experience what a one-room schoolhouse would have been, like how it would have functioned, the textbooks, the chalk and the slate, the math lessons, you'll all get to to learn about that, experience that. We also have a cursive writing activity and also a dip pen. Um, so you can dip your pen into ink and then try writing your name. It'll be a lot of fun. That is on September 16th from 10 to 1 PM. So of course, when Any event that we have, we need to have our historical facts to back that up to inform our interpretation. So, Malia, let's start with you. And what did you learn about one-room schoolhouses?
1: Um, I actually was only able to find a couple of pictures. I think Sarah found most of the information regarding the actual schoolroom itself. So I don't have a lot of information. But from the pictures, it looks like it's very small and um, close-knit in there. That's all the pictures really told me. I'm sorry, I didn't really have a lot of information on the schoolhouses. I didn't have as much luck with that.
2: So a lot of the information I found came from a book called A Second Home, Missouri's Early Schools by Sue Thomas. And while I I don't know if you would consider Missouri necessarily the South or the Midwest, But I'm sure that a lot of the rural areas were pretty much the same in community. So from Thomas's book, I learned that most of the earliest log schools were built without using any iron nails or metal hardware of any kind. They used wooden pins as nails, hinges, and door latches. There was usually always a fireplace in the room, and that provided heat for the students and a place to cook them food. Most of the cabins were built close to the ground, and they were supported with stone pillars. The openings for windows were often covered with animal skins, gunny sacks, blankets, paper, or sometimes just a plank with leather straps that could be raised and lowered or opened and closed. The floors were typically left as dirt or straw covering dirt. There was typically only one shared writing shelf that was the only desk in the school and the benches were made out of puncheon logs. Um, And as for wall decorations, there would occasionally be a colorful picture or two hanging on the wall. Um, In earlier days, it'd be a tasteful portrait of George Washington. And following the Civil War, some schools would also add a portrait of Abraham Lincoln. And as for the conduct in the classroom, a popular system was the Lancaster system, which was where students would teach other students that had less knowledge than they did. Within this system, the older students would typically teach younger students. And this was most popular in rural schools due to the fact that all ages and all abilities were all taught by one teacher. And most of the time, the teachers were former students of the schoolhouses in which they now teach. Keeping on the same, like uh, older students have the responsibilities, train of thought. Older students would also usually bring in water and fetch coal or wood for the stove. And then for the younger students, they would be... um, It'd be according to their size and gender, but they would be given responsibilities such as sweeping, cleaning the blackboard, or taking um, the erasers outside for dusting. After that, I moved on to my research of kind of what the community was like for the teachers, what the environment was like for them. And while there was not a majority of male teachers, sometimes they would live in a teacherage, which was located near the school or often attached to it, and they were usually the ones to help care for and maintain the building as well. As for the female teachers of the time, being a teacher gave women the opportunity to enter a quote-unquote wider world of ideas, politics, and public usefulness. Many of these women welcomed the independence and sense of purpose that teaching gave them. Most popularly, they would only teach for a few years until they would settle down to get married, as during this time, female teachers were not allowed to be married. And if they were married, they would they would be fired. And then working in such close quarters with other women led to formed associations. They would go to summer training experiences, they would gain friendships, exchange ideas, and that ultimately led to the transformation of their community. And the feminization of teaching changed not only how women were perceived by society, but how women perceived themselves.
0: Wonderful, so you'll get to see all of that in action at our one-room School House homestead day. Now, I wanted to um, ask y'all about your experiences being interns here at the Northeast Georgia History Center. Y'all were, of course, educational research interns, and y'all were both virtual. So our internships, we offer both in-person and virtual. So I wanted to know about how did having a virtual internship impact your experience? Um, and just can you tell us a little bit about your experience overall? Uh, Malia, we'll start with you.
1: Okay. Um, I personally really liked ha- being a virtual intern. It made it a lot easier to get my work done as I could kind of thing. And because I had such a bi- busy schedule all summer. So it was, it was very, a very positive experience. I did enjoy that a lot being the virtual aspect of it. And then overall it was, a, I had a very great experience being an intern here. It was a little bit challenging at first because it was research I wasn't usually used to doing. I was usually used to doing like anthropology based things, but now I have such a versatile like research scope. So it was a great learning experience for me.
0: Wonderful.
2: All right. And Sarah? Um, I second Malia's sentiment that it was really easy to be able to work at my own pace. It was really fun because obviously we did go in person for some events and stuff.
0: We have to get you into the History Center at some point. You got to see it in action, right? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. But yeah, getting more experience with like
2: virtual deadlines, organizing my research for other people to read was another really big thing that I think I... Gained a lot of experience with.
0: How do you feel this internship helped you with experience uh, in researching? Did it stretch your experience with trying to find historical documents or or scholarly sources? Um, I would like to just hear a little bit about that. So, Malia, we'll start with you.
1: Yes, it it definitely stretched my experience because I was I had never had to go into like archives or go down like a little rabbit hole, or like go to genealogist genealogist uh, section in a library. So it definitely taught me how to do those things, and it has strengthened my research abilities. So that was a very big positive for this internship.
2: Yeah, same with me. I have a lot of experience with research being a history major, but most of the classes I've taken up to now have been more modern history classes, and then the ones that have been ancient history they all of the information I looked at was digitized so it was really easy to just go to the sources that my professors would send me or anything like that so getting to do this essentially by myself but obviously with the help of um, you and Leslie Marie it was it was really great to learn what resources worked for my research preferences and all that kind of stuff
0: Wonderful. And what would you say to close is your favorite part of your internship experience here at the Northeast Georgia History Center? Melalia, we'll start with you.
1: My favorite part was doing research about White Path himself. I had originally thought that the, my favorite part would be the cabin, but White, Chief White Path himself was the most interesting part. And I, I was very, very excited when I found the historic registr- registration document about his gravesite. It was just he he in general is just very interesting um my all-time favorite
2: thing that i did this summer was looking at the like district maps from the land lottery surveys and then comparing them to modern day maps like specifically when i was figuring out where patates creek was in relation to ella j i was like i had to look at the creek on the map from 1835 or 1832 and then i'd go look at a normal like a modern day map and i'm like where is this Um, So, like, doing the little compare and contrast to find that was really fun.
0: Y'all were great historical detectives trying to piece together this story that, of course, I mean, we, were, we have a pretty good picture of what the, the White Pass story in the cabin is, but trying to piece together those smaller details, maybe an overlooked map um, or something of that nature. So it has been wonderful to have you all as interns this summer. Don't be strangers. Come back. Let us know what you're doing here at the History Center. I'm sure our listeners will also be interested to know where you go and how you spread your wings and soar as you depart from the History Center. So thank you so much for all of your wonderful work this summer and and take care.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much. I had such a great
0: time. Then Again is a production of the Northeast Georgia History Center in Gainesville, Georgia. Our podcast is edited by media producer Guada Rodriguez. Our digital and on-site programs are made possible by the Ada Mae Ivester Education Center. Please join us next week for another episode of Then Again.